Good morning again. So, we continue our journey through Revelation, and we're in chapter 2. And this week, we're going to look at the compromising church, the church of Pergamos, or Pergamon. So, I just pray, and we'll start. Lord, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the application that we get from this. Lord, you say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I pray that you would give us ears to hear, not just to hear, but to listen, and to uh, not just to see, but to understand. So I pray that you'll bless us with that gift of understanding, of truth, as your Spirit works in us to teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, again, we just normally start with the overview of the book, just so you can learn that. It's got three parts. Chapter 1, verse 19 gives us the outline. The things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. Things which you've seen is Jesus revealing himself to John in chapter 1. The things which are is the church age, and that's chapters 2 and 3. So we're working our way through the church age now and Jesus' messages to the churches. And then in chapter 4, it's the things which will take place after this, metatauta, after these things. The rapture separates the time of the Gentiles from the time when God starts working with Israel again. That last seven-year period, going back to the book of Daniel, the 77's prophecy, which you can look at if you want to go back into the Daniel study that we did. And so you've got seven-year tribulation, then you've got the second coming of Christ at the end of the seven-year tribulation, then you've got the sheep and the goat judgment, then you've got the thousand-year rule and reign of Jesus Christ, and then at the end of that is a great white throne judgment, which was a judgment of unbelievers where they are resurrected, the second resurrection. And then you have the new heavens and the new earth. So that's basically how it works. So chapters 2 and 3 contain personal messages from Jesus to each of the seven churches. So as a quick review, so far we've covered Ephesus, which is characterized or called the loveless church. And that was, generally speaking, covered the history of the church overall from AD 33 to AD 100. And then Smyrna is a persecuted church and from around about 100 AD to 312 AD as the Christians were being persecuted. Now, it doesn't mean every Christian was being persecuted, but overall, that was a general state or the most common experience. So, what about Ephesus? Quick revision. The letter addressed to Ephesus it's the loveless church, and it represents the early church becoming dead, so to speak, by the end of the first century. It was characterized by good doctrine or teaching and the testing and identification of false prophets and false teachers. It was known for good works, labor and patience during trials, but it wasn't a work of faith. It wasn't a labor of love, and it wasn't perseverance or patience in hope. So they were missing faith, hope, and love. They had left their first love, and their hearts had grown cold toward God, and their motive for serving God was not love. They had become idol worshippers because an idol is anything that's more important than God. And even we can have this happen to us. Even busyness can cause us to drift away from God. Other things can become more important. And what does Jesus command them to do? He says, repent. And he gives us three instructions for when we move away from God, drift away from God. 
remember, return, and then do the first works. So remember, repent, and return. So the first works are Bible, prayer, and fellowship. And then we can be fruitful again. Now the second letter was addressed to the church of Smyrna. Smyrna is a persecuted church. They were materially poor. They couldn't get jobs because they were the lower class than the rest of all the citizens. They were persecuted economically as well as being martyred or killed because they refused to offer a pinch of incense to the Roman emperor. And what does Jesus say? He says that they are rich. So they are or were a rich, poor church, rich in the things of God, but poor in the things of the world. And that's what we should be too. Jesus' instruction to them was, stop being afraid, become faithful unto death. Positive message, isn't it? Things aren't going to get better for the next 200 years. This is what life is going to be like. So stop being afraid, be faithful unto death. So we need to learn to trust that whatever God brings across our path, no matter how difficult, it is for his glory and for our good. So we are transformed into the likeness of Jesus as his spirit changes us from the inside out. So for many Christians, even today, following Jesus will cost you your life. And we need to be willing to make the ultimate sacrifice. Remembering that Jesus has overcome death. Uh, Now the third letter is addressed to the church of Pergamos. So... Here we go, the three churches now. Pergamos is a compromising church. And this goes from AD 313 to roughly AD 600, which corresponds to the fall of the Roman Empire. So what was happening in Pergamos? Well, Pergamos was the political capital of the Roman province of Asia, the less. And when John was writing this, It had been the capital of this region for more than 300 years, so it was a a big place. It had this huge library, and they had more than 200,000 scrolls or volumes or books, whatever you want to call them, back then. So it was a place for culture and education. And it was also an extremely religious city. You had temples to the Greek and Roman gods, uh, Dionysus, Athena, Dementor, and Zeus. And it also had three, not just one, but three temples for the worship of the Roman emperor. And so the church here suffered in the same way as the church in Sardis at the time. And they were martyred. But there were problems. Now, the name Pergamos, so per, it means opposition, that prefix can mean opposition. And gamos is in words like monogamy and bigamy, means marriage. So Pergamos Its name means objectionable marriage. And that's a pretty fitting description of this phase in church history. So I'll just explain a bit about how it happened. So when we read the text, it'll make sense what he's saying. This is a history. So the year is AD 312. And the last of the 10 Roman emperors who had persecuted the church was dead. So remember last week we talked about the 10 days of persecution, most likely meaning 10 Roman emperors who would persecute the church, and that's exactly what happened. So for that 200 or so years, the the church was persecuted by the Roman Empire because they would not offer incense to the emperor. They would not call him Lord because Jesus is Lord. So anyway, the last of the 10 Roman emperors who had persecuted the church was dead. The year is AD 312. And now there's a power play. 
who's going to be the next emperor? And there's this one young hopeful, Constantine. And he is preparing to engage in this huge battle. Now, according to legend, he saw a cross in the heavens and heard a voice saying, In this sign conquer. And as a result, young Constantine fell to his knees and became a born-again believer. (laughs) Well, there's another version. According to history, however, what really happened was that, substantially outnumbered, Constantine noticed that Christians were not enlisting in anyone's army. So realising that if he converted to Christianity, he would have access to a potential infusion of new troops. And he became a Christian. Good politician, isn't he? (laughs) It's about how the politicians work today. I'll become like these people so I get their votes. And the Christians responded by siding with him. Fell for his trick. So this is a disaster. They won the war. The Christians joined in. They won the war. And Constantine, as a result, made this edict. And it's called the Edict of Toleration. And it stopped the persecution of Christians. It made it illegal to persecute Christians. And Christianity became the official religion of Rome. All the babies born were baptized as Christian. Can you imagine that? What a beautiful empire it was. Are all Christians? <laughs> Not. Okay. So, Constantine being the great politician he was, the expediency of concession, that phrase, okay. It's expedient to concede things, to compromise. And so what he did was he took some of what the church taught, with some of what the pagan religions taught, and we'll meet halfway. And so it became this false marriage, this objectionable marriage of the pagan religions and Christianity. Not long after this, there was a coin produced, and on one side of the coin were Christian symbols, and on the other side of the coin were pagan symbols. And it's a really powerful visual of explaining what was going on in this time from 313 to AD 600. During this time, the church and the state worked together as a political power. So the church was a political power. And as a result, the church began this terrible downward spiral of compromise and sin and becoming weaker and weaker as it conformed to the world. So, with that as a background, let's read Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days when Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or I will come to you quickly, and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So, start at verse 12. 
And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. Now remember in chapter 1 verse 16, it was Jesus who had the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. So he's revealing himself to them using this description. Now, what is this sharp two-edged sword? Well, if we go to Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So Jesus is going to use this sharp two-edged sword, meaning the word of God, to confront and cause separation among the Christians in Pergamos. Who would repent of their false doctrine and their support of it, and who wouldn't? Now, in verse 13, Jesus explains what he knows about the church at Pergamos, and first he's going to commend them for what they're doing right. So verse 13 says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So, I know your works. Now, for us individually, God knows our works too. He sees, he knows, and he will reward us for what we do. And he will discipline us if we're not walking properly. And where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So what does that mean? What does it mean where Satan's throne is? Well, in many ways, Pergamos was a stronghold of satanic power because of many factors, including it was the centre of pagan religion and also the political centre for the worship of the Roman emperor. So they had lots and lots of temples there. There was this massive altar to Zeus, and that was actually referred to as Satan's throne. And that was built for the lovely purpose of human sacrifice. And it says, you hold fast to my name. So, despite the fact they lived in such a difficult city, the Christians of Pergamos held fast to their faith in Jesus. They held fast to my name. They did not deny my faith. Now, my faith, where is my faith? Is it in Christ? Is it in another teacher? Is it in another church? Is it in another person? Who are we trusting in? Is it in money? Okay, but their faith was in Christ. Now, Antipas. Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you. Now, John knew Antipas. He was the bishop or pastor of Pergamos. And he received his precious title, faithful martyr. Now, who else had this title? Jesus. In Revelation 1 verse 5, Jesus is called the faithful witness. Martyr is witness. So what this means is that Antipas was a man who followed Jesus, who was a disciple of Jesus, who was like Jesus. Now when we get to heaven, there's going to be many saints like Antipas who will be rewarded and commended by Jesus for their continued faith in him. So here's a story of Antipas. And it's a riveting story. So the year is AD 92. So this is before John wrote the book of Revelation. And he's the bishop of Pergamon or Pergamos. He's ordained by the Apostle John. 
And his faith got the attention of the priests of Asclepios. Now, this is the God of healing and is represented by snakes or a snake. And they used to put people in this room and have snakes crawl over them. Not poisonous ones, but they reckon there was power in the snakes, you see. And they said he had cast out so many devils that the demons had been complaining to pagans, saying, you've got to do something about this antipas. Now, how would you like to have a prayer life like this guy? The pagan priests went to the Roman governor and complained that the prayers of Antipas were driving their spirits out of the city, meaning demons, right, and hindering the worship of their false gods. They didn't say false gods, but that's what they are. As a punishment, the governor ordered Antipas to offer a sacrifice of wine and incense to a statue of the Roman emperor, same as usual, and declare that the emperor was Lord and God. And of course, Antipas refused. And they said, if you reject the divinity of the emperor, then that is the equivalent of rejecting the city of Rome. And as we learned last week, believers were killed for this. So, Antipas was sentenced to death on the altar of Zeus, also known as the throne of Satan. Most of the altar still survives today. And it's got all these marble freezers around it, like the statues, uh, depicting battles and all this kind of stuff. Now, What's important is at the top of this huge altar was a hollow bronze bull made specifically for human sacrifice. And this is where Antipas was executed. Here's a quote from someone. They would take the victim, place him inside the bull, and they would tie him in such a way that his head would go into the head of the bull. Then they would light a huge fire under the bull. And as the fire heated the bronze, the person inside of the bull would slowly begin to roast to death. As the victim would begin to moan and cry out in pain, his cries would echo through the pipes in the head of the bull, so it seemed to make the bull come alive. (laughs) But what about Antipas? Even in the midst of the flames, the elderly bishop Antipas died praying for his church. Not groaning and crying out, but praying for his church. What a witness, what a testimony, eh? So it's quite amplified. <laughs> People are listening to this guy praying for his church as he's being burnt in this um, throne of Satan, this altar to Zeus. So, the application for us. Antipas lived where Satan's throne was, yet he stood against the attacks and the evil around him. Now, Antipas means against all. So Antipas fulfilled the meaning of his name. He was against all the attacks of the enemy. He was against all the temptations that came his way and he was against all the tribulations that were on his path and the same should be true for us. Now the word martyr is an interesting word. It's based on the ancient Greek word martis and it never meant to die for something. It just meant to be a witness like in a court of law. Basically a martis was one who said this is true and I know it. He's going to the court of law. This is my testimony. This is true. And it's not until the New Testament times that martyrs ever meant martyr. So what a martyr is, it's more than someone just dying for their faith. It's actually being a witness for Christ. It's saying what I believe about Jesus is true and I know it. Now we don't have to die to be a witness. Okay, We don't have to die to be a witness. We just need to be faithful to our calling as Christians. 
when we walk the talk, living by the power of the Spirit, that is the greatest evidence that what we say we believe is true. So what does this look like? What are the main attributes of someone who is a faithful witness, who is mature in their faith, someone who is constantly walking in the Spirit? Got a couple of scriptures here. The first one is Ephesians 4, 1-3. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making an allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. And another one. John thirteen thirty four to 35 So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. So what's our greatest witness? Love one for another. So, Antipas was not just a brave soul who was willing to make the ultimate sacrifice, but his life was a witness of Christ's love. He was not just motivated by love for God in his death, but also in his life. Now, I believe the secret to Antipas's ability to make the ultimate sacrifice is that he had been practiced dying for a long time. He had been dying to self. He had been dying daily all his life. He was a godly man. Dying daily is a secret to a life wholly devoted to God. We need to die daily to ourselves, our sinful nature. It's all about saying, not my will, but yours be done. And we have Luke 9, 23 and 24. It says, Then Jesus said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, that is, deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. So, the key word here is daily, okay? The Christian walk is a daily walk. We feed on the Word of God daily. We pray daily. We fellowship, if we can, daily. How often do we say no to temptation? Daily. How often are we willing to suffer the kingdom of God? Daily. And how often must we decide to deny ourselves and put God's will ahead of our own? Daily. Okay. There's no such thing as a Sunday Christian. Either you're living for God or you're not. And if you're not, then you need to repent. So now we see Jesus rebuking the church for what they're doing wrong in verse 14. So moving on. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Ah, now, Balaam, he's a prototype of all corrupt or false teachers or prophets. They all kind of follow his ways, his motives. So it's worth looking into who he was and what he did. And to do that, we need to go into the Old Testament. So I'd encourage you to look up Numbers chapter 22 in your Bibles. And I'll just explain the background to the story, and then we'll read through Numbers chapter 22 together. And, and you'll have a better understanding of what this is talking about. So, quick summary. Balaam, his so-called prophet of God, he was asked by the Moabite king Balak 
to pronounce a curse on the people of Israel. Now, the people of Israel had left Egypt. They'd been wandering for a long time, and it's getting close to the time for them to go into the Promised Land. And they just defeated the Ammonites, and now they're on the border of the Moabites. And King Balak, he looks down and he sees this massive group of people, like two million people or so, most likely, or more. And he goes, "Uh uh-oh, I can't defeat these people. In God's with these people. They need to be cursed. And so he goes to find Balaam. He sends people to Balaam. There's a story behind this, but on the way to Balak, Balaam has a conversation with his donkey. Interesting. And then he ends up on this mountain overlooking the encamped Israelites. And then he's asked to curse them. But he can't because he can't curse someone who God has blessed. Simple, okay? If God has blessed us, then no one can curse us. But Balaam had another plan, a backup plan. He wanted the money. He wanted the reward from Balak. And so he gave Balak an idea. He instructed Balak to do this thing. He basically said, if a woman seduced the Israelite men, they can introduce idol worship to them, and Israel will bring a curse upon themselves because they will bring God's discipline upon themselves. So let's read Numbers 22. Then the people of Israel traveled to the plains of Moab and camped east of the Jordan River. Across from Jericho, Balak, son of Zippor, the Moabite king, had seen everything the Israelites did to the Amorites. They defeated them, wiped them out. And when the people of Moab saw how many Israelites there were, they were terrified. The king of Moab said to the elders of Midian, This mob will devour everything in sight like an ox devours grass in the field. So Balak, king of Moab, sent messengers to call Balaam, son of Beor, who was living in his native land of Pethor near the Euphrates River. His message said, Look, a vast horde of people has arrived from Egypt. They cover the face of the earth and are threatening me. Please come and curse these people for me because they are too powerful for me. Then perhaps I will be able to conquer them and drive them from the land. I know that blessings fall on any people you bless and curses fall on people you curse. Balak's messengers, who were elders of Moab and Midian, set out with money to pay Balaam. Okay, notice that? To pay Balaam to place a curse upon Israel. Balaam is a prophet for hire. He's a prophet looking for profit. That's a typical thing of a false prophet. They're prophet looking for profit. And they went to Balaam and delivered Balak's message to him. Stay here overnight, Balaam said. In the morning I will tell you whatever the Lord directs me to say. So the officials from Moab stayed there with Balaam. That night God came to Balaam and asked him, Who are these men visiting you? Balaam said to God, Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent me this message. Look, a vast horde of people has arrived from Egypt, and they cover the face of the earth. Come and curse these people for me, and then perhaps I'll be able to stand up to them and drive them from the land. But God told Balaam, Do not go with them. You are not to curse these people, for they have been blessed. The next morning, Balaam got up and told Balak's officials, Go on home. The Lord will not let me go with you. So the Moabite officials returned to King Balak and reported, Balaam refused to come with us. Then Balak tried again. This time he sent a larger number of even more distinguished officials than those he had sent the first time. 
they went to Balaam and delivered this message to him. This is what Balak, son of Zippor, says. Please don't let anything stop you from coming to help me. I will pay you very well and do whatever you tell me. Just come and curse these people for me. But Balaam responded to Balak's messengers. Even if Balak were to give me his palace filled with silver and gold, I would be powerless to do anything against the will of the Lord my God. But stay here one more night, and I will see if the Lord has anything else to say to me. Now here, he should have just told him to get lost. Get out of here. But he didn't. He said, oh, that money. He's, you know, it's covetousness, right? That night, God came to Balaam and told him, Since these men have come for you, get up and go with them. But do only what I tell you to do. So the next morning, Balaam got up, saddled his donkey, and started off with the mobile officials. But God was angry that Balaam was going. So he sent the angel of the Lord to stand in the road to block his way. As Balaam and two servants were riding along, Balaam's donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. The donkey bolted off the road into a field, but Balaam beat it and turned it back onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood at a place where the road narrowed between two vineyard walls. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, it tried to squeeze by and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So Balaam beat the donkey again. Then the angel of the Lord moved further down the road and stood in a place too narrow for the donkey to get by at all. This time, when the donkey saw the angel, it laid down under Balaam. In a fit of rage, Balaam beat the animal again with his staff. Then the Lord gave the donkey the ability to speak. (laughs) What have I done to you that deserves your beating me three times? It asked Balaam. Balaam replies, You have made me look like a fool, Balaam shouted. If I had a sword with me, I would kill you. But I am the same donkey you have ridden all your life, the donkey answered. Have I ever done anything like this before? No, Balaam admitted. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the roadway with a drawn sword in his hand. Balaam bowed his head and fell face down on the ground before him. Why did you beat your donkey those three times? The angel of the Lord demanded. Look, I have come to block your way because you are stubbornly refusing or resisting me. Another version says you are perverse before me. Three times the donkey saw me and shied away. Otherwise, I would certainly have killed you by now and spared the donkey. Then Balaam confessed to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. I didn't realize you were standing in the road to block my way. I will return home if you are against my going. But the angel of the Lord told Balaam, Go with these men, but say only what I tell you to say. So Balaam went on with Balak's officials. When King Balak heard that Balaam was on his way, he went out to meet him at a Moabite town. And it goes on. And then he's up on this mountain and he can see the Israelites spread before him. And I'm not going to read chapters 23 and 24, but in those chapters, three times they set up shop with these altars and sacrifices and stuff and Balaam tries to curse, but he can't and he ends up blessing. By the end of this, Balak is furious. Then we go to Numbers chapter 25. Now I'm going to put this on the screen. This is the result of Balaam's advice to King Balak. This is what happened. 
So just picture this. You've got the Israelites down in Acacia Grove, and then you've got the Moabites. And the Moabite women came across. You know how some girls dress these days with not very much on, and tempted some of these guys to have sexual relations and then to attend the sacrifices to their gods. So I'll just read it. Numbers 25, 1 to 3. While the Israelites were encamped at Acacia Grove, some of the men defiled themselves by having sexual relations with local Moabite women. These women invited them to attend sacrifices to their gods. So the Israelites feasted with them and worshipped the gods of Moab. In this while, Israel joined in the worship of Baal Peor, or was joined to Baal Peor, causing the Lord's anger to blaze against his people. Whew. They couldn't be cursed, but they could bring discipline upon themselves. So, in summary, after three times of trying to curse them, he couldn't curse them. Balaam resorted to an alternate plan. If he women seduce the Israelite men, he said to Balak, they can introduce idol worship to them through which Israel will bring a curse upon herself. So now we understand who Balaam is and what he did. So we're going to come back to the church of Pergamos and see how it applies here. So verse 14 in Revelation chapter 2 says, But I have a few things against you, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, notice that he taught Balak, to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So remember that this church prophetically speaks of the time when there wasn't persecution and there was literally a combining of pagan and Christians, pagan religion and the Christian religion. So it's a very good description of what happened. So what happened when Israel was joined to Baal Peor? Well, the church was joined to the pagan worship during this time. It was a very bad time for the church. Not all the church, just a lot of the church. So basically, there's people in the church in Pergamos who were guilty of idolatry and sexual immorality. That's what it's saying. Now, what was the culture in Rome like? And this is good for us to know because this will help us. Here's a quote. Sexual immorality marked the whole culture of the ancient Roman Empire. It was simply taken for granted. And the person who lived by biblical standards of purity was considered strange. To paraphrase the Roman statesman Cicero, if there is anyone who thinks that young men should not be allowed the love of or sex of many women, he is extremely severe. I am not able to deny the principle he stands on, but he contradicts not only the freedom our age allows, but also with the customs and allowances of our ancestors. When indeed was this not done? When did anyone find fault with it? When was such permission denied? When was it that what is now allowed was not allowed? <laughs> Talking about the sexual immorality. So to keep from sexual immorality in that culture, you really had to swim against the current. And I would suggest that our culture, in our Western culture, is basically the same. Everything on the movies and the TV and the internet and all those things, social media is all about sexual immorality, 
or idolatry, money, pleasure. So, remember that during this time from 313 to 600 AD, Christianity was its official state religion. There was no more persecution. Everyone was baptized as a Christian. They were legally a Christian. They had the kind with the Christian symbols on one side and the pagan symbols on the other. So this is an objectionable marriage, a joining of the church to the world, just like the Israelites had joined to Baal Peor and they worshipped their gods. So the church should be in the world, but the world should not be in the church. Just like a boat should be in the water, but the water should not be in the boat. <laughs> what happens when water gets in the boat? It sinks, all right? And before it sinks, it becomes very unstable. So the majority of the people in the church during these years were both most likely sexually immoral and or spiritually immoral, okay? Because we can commit adultery against God. In the Old Testament, it says this a lot. Not physically, but spiritually. Our heart can be going after other things. So basically, the church had lost its purity and its power. They were now comfortable and had become complacent. No more persecution, right? Life is easy. No more poverty. Life is easy. And the idols were doing money and power because the church was also co-reigning. So remember the warning here. Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. And the church was basically aligning itself with the world. So the church of Christ, God's church, is not of this world. It will never be of this world. It will never fit in. And so to become a part of the world, the church compromised. And verse 15, Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which think I hate. Now we looked at the doctrine or teaching of the Nicolaitans last week, but here's a quick summary. Nicolaitans, power over the people. It's a system of hierarchy where the priests or leaders would have power over the people. And it literally means, Nicolaus means to conquer the people. And we also learned that Nicolaitans approved of and practiced sexual immorality and greed. Now, it says in this verse, in verse 15, you have those and you also have those, talking about the people who hold to the doctrines or teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, you have those in your midst. Now, they didn't all agree with them, but they didn't do anything about it. So, by not doing anything about it, you're giving your consent. So, it's really easy to just say nothing. You know, oh, I don't really agree with that, but I'm not going to say anything. No. God is saying, you have those in your midst who have these false teachings. Do something about it. They were like the church in Corinth. And if you read 1 Corinthians 1, 5-9, I'm not going to read it now. But they were too tolerant and accepting of false doctrines and immoral living. And Jesus had to rebuke them then. They had to be disciplined. And this is important. What Satan couldn't accomplish by persecution, he accomplished by using deception. What Satan couldn't accomplish by persecution, he accomplished by using deception and comfort, complacency. So we need to get this false teaching out of our churches because our relationship with God will only be as good as our doctrine. Why? Because bad doctrine or bad teaching leads to bad living. And it can be one or two extremes. It can be legalism 
or it can be licentiousness, which is fleshly living, you know, living for the flesh, looking to gratify our physical appetites. So whatever it is, sin will separate us from God. Verse 16, repent. This is the answer. Repent or I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now five of the seven churches are told to repent. Guess what? We have to do it to be saved. Repent. Guess what we have to do every time we sin? Repent. <laughs> okay. Repenting is not something we just do once. It's a lifestyle. Okay. It's turning away from sin and turning to God. It's a continuous process. And then Jesus says, Or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So unless they repent, the Christians of Pergamos would face Jesus and his discipline. Now, First Peter says that judgment starts at the house of God. But as I said, we'll come back to that when we're finished. Verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So there's two things here, the hidden manna and the white stone. There's two motivations to persevere. So there's promises of reward. To him who overcomes, what are they overcoming this time? In the church of Ephesus, overcoming their lack of love with the church of Smyrna. They were told to overcome the fear of death. Why? Because Jesus said that they would go through 10 days of trials. And he said to be faithful unto death. And so he tells them, do not fear death. To overcome the fear of death. But here, what they're overcoming is this spirit of accommodation, of compromise to false teaching. Now, if we overcome, we will receive the hidden manna. What is this hidden manna? Well, it's the true bread from heaven. It's Jesus himself. In the wilderness, God sustained the children of Israel for 40 years with manna, this white coriander seed type bread that they would pick up every morning. Just read John six fifty-eight. a reference to this in the New Testament. I am the true bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, even though they ate the manna, but will live forever. So, the hidden manna, this is an assurance that, from what Jesus said, anyone who eats this bread will not die as your ancestors did, but will live forever. So we can feed on the lies and poison of false teachers, false prophets in the world, which leads to death, or we can feed on Jesus, we can find our truth, our sustenance, our strength in him. And now if we keep ourselves pure and stay true to God's word, we will experience a sweet satisfaction and contentment that comes from abiding with Jesus. We need to be feeding on him, depending on him as the living word. He is the only source of eternal joy, love, and strength. Now, we covered manna before when we went through John, but just quickly, manna is a picture of the word of God. And there's a couple of things here we just remind us. If we don't eat, we will starve. So the manna was only there in the morning and then it evaporated. We have one opportunity every day to read. Well, we can read the word any time of the day, really. But 
We need to read the Word every day. And if we don't, we will starve our spirit. We'll be weak. And like with the manna, you had to bend down and collect it. It was hard work. You collect it one seed at a time. So your devotions are going to be a process of humbly going to the Word and reading it bit by bit. And the purpose of the written Word of God is to point us to the living Word, Jesus, not just for intellectual knowledge. Now, the second benefit here is I will give him a white stone. Now, in the ancient world, the white stone was used for many things. For example, if I wanted to invite you to my house for a banquet or a feast or something, I would give you a white stone. It's your invitation. It could be a sign of friendship. So if you're a really close friend, I'd give you a white stone. And we might exchange white stones. It could be a sign of acquittal in a court of law. So if you're being judged on something, okay, we found you not guilty, okay, here's a white stone. We don't know exactly what Jesus was referring to, but they all are good. So whether it means you're acquitted, whether it means it's a a sign of friendship, whether it means a ticket to the banquet, now we're going to a banquet, we've got a ticket, don't we? So... It could be any of those things, but they're all good things. Now, on the stone, a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. So, whose name is this? Is it God's name? Is it the believer's name? I'm leaning towards it's the believer's new name. And a couple of reasons why. This secret new name shows an intimate relationship with us and God. Because when you become close to someone, you often have pet names for each other. You have a special name for each other. One that demonstrates your closeness of relationship. And it could be that. Another idea is that a new name is simply the assurance it gives us of a heavenly destination. My name is written on the stone. It's my reservation. It's my ticket. So it could be that too. All right. Now, the application for today to finish off. Roman culture reminds us of today's Western culture. Remember, in the Roman culture, to keep from sexual immorality, you really had to swim against the current. And today's church faces the same test, idolatry and sexual immorality. So I'm just going to read those verses from Numbers again. When the Israelites were camped at Acacia Grove, some of the men defiled themselves by having sexual relations with local Moabite women. These women invited them to attend sacrifices to their gods. So the Israelites feasted with them and worshipped the gods of Moab. In this way, Israel joined in the worship of Baal or Peor, causing the Lord's anger to blaze against his people. So nothing's changed. The men and women of this world are still inviting us to join them in their sexual immorality and their worship of idols, pleasure, money, power, whatever it might be. What Satan couldn't do through violence, he did through deceit. Okay? Compromise. Back in that day, 24,000 people died as God's plague went through the camp, God's judgment, his discipline. I think it's foolish if we think that God 
won't carry out his promise to discipline the church if we are joined to the world because God wants to purify us. God wants us to be set apart. And that verse I was referring to in First Peter is First Peter 4.17. It says, For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, in the church today, what do we have? We have homosexual and lesbian pastors and other people. Other compromises. We have acceptance of unmarried people living together. We have churches greedy for money. Churches drawing people in using the promise of a better life, the prosperity gospel. Again, this is just a new version of idolatry and sexual immorality. Nothing has changed. What did Solomon say? There's nothing new under the sun. Satan's schemes are always predictable. So why do we keep falling for them? (laughs) Nothing's new. This is what Satan's doing. Let's wake up. So how do we avoid the judgment that will begin at the house of God? How do we enjoy the presence of God in our lives? Well, we be a faithful witness. We die every day. We practice dying every day, denying ourselves, saying, not my will but yours be done, and taking up our cross and following Jesus. We say no to the world's invitation and yes to God's. We hold on to that white stone, the invitation. Feed on Jesus, the bread from heaven, and not on the poison that the world offers, not on the substitutes. And just to finish, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17 and on, it says, Therefore, come out from among unbelievers and separate yourselves from them, says the Lord. Don't touch their filthy things, and I will welcome you, and I will be your father, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit. And let us work toward complete holiness because we fear God. So Father, I just thank you for this powerful message that you've given us in the Church of Pergamos. Lord, it's very relevant for our day and age. Surprising that most of the Bible is still relevant uh, because you don't change. Nothing changes. Technology has changed, but morally, we're still the same people. still have the same sinful nature. And Satan is still using the same devices to try and trip us up. So, Father, help us to remember to stay pure, to stay separated from this world. And we need to take a stand against false doctrine. We need to take a stand against things that are going to cause people to fall away from you, cause people to not come to you. And Lord, help us to speak the truth in love. But first and foremost, help us to live pure lives. Help us to feed on that hidden manner. Help us to depend upon Christ and to find everything that we need in him, in you, Father. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.